How many of you were Boy Scouts when you were younger? I did Boy Scouts. I got kicked out after a month. I did Boy Scouts for a while. Do you remember the motto of the Boy Scouts? You remember it? Be prepared. See, even a mom had to say it right there. Be prepared. Be prepared. That was the motto. And it was a good, it was a good thought. Be, meaning be ready for what is going to happen in life. Get yourself ready so that when the moment comes of opportunity, when the moment comes that there's an open door, you're ready for it. They say it takes 30 years to make an overnight success. And we have all these stories about people that seem to go from rags to riches, and it seems like, man, they just were in the right place at the right time, and they just got lucky. That's the way we treat it. But the reality is, if you look at any of the lives of those who have had a measure of success in life, there was a lot that went on behind the scenes. There was sacrifice, there was perseverance, there was, in our, in our setting, there was prayer, there was preparation in the spirit, so that when the moment came, it didn't pass them by. There's this old song, I used to, we used to love singing it. Uh, it went, while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. And I got that song. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Dun, dun, bum, bum, bum. I got it all in my. <laughs> we don't want the Lord to pass us by, and he won't. He, he loves checking in with his kids. It's just that we don't always notice. When, when we say, man, the Lord passed me right by, it's not because he didn't stop and stare. It's that we were too busy with other things. I'm urging us, again, to get out of our routine a ritualistic way of going through life and look unto the fields. They are white unto harvest. The greatest joy in life is found in bringing other people, gathering them back into the family of God. There is no greater joy than that. There's no greater eternal joy than that. There are moments in life that make you go, whoo, I hope you have a lot of them. I pray that you have moments in life that just make you shout for joy spontaneously with nobody needing to exhort you to do it. But I also pray that every one of us will have the joy of bringing somebody into a saving, living, eternal relationship with the only one in whom is life. There is no greater purpose in life. No matter what other things we do, whether they're written about in books or spoken about in stories, there is no greater thing in heaven's record than to put someone else's name in the Lamb's book of life. You can envision yourself walking that person up that you just led to Jesus to that book and saying, look right there. See that? That means you got eternity in paradise and I'm gonna be there with you the whole time. There is no greater joy than that. But it takes some preparation. I, I am absolutely 100% certain that we are in the middle of a harvest right now. We are in the middle of a time of harvest right now. And so I want to share some things with you today to make sure that we are doing the internal preparation so that we can be good managers, good laborers in the harvest field. As somebody prayed earlier this morning, we don't have a lack of laborers here at Hillside. I know the people of this house, and I know there are so many that are ready, or sleeves rolled up, ready to get into that harvest field and minister in it. And so today I want to equip you a little bit and challenge you a little bit and bring us as a community into some things that we need to grow in that we need to practice and really, really go after as a people so that we can say at the end of our lives, I want to be able to stand before God and say, I did not lose one that you gave to me. That's what Jesus was able to say. I want to be able to say the same thing. So I'll share some things probably next week about our commission is not go and make converts of all nations. 
our commission is go and make disciples of all the nations. There's a difference. Convert, makes praise the sinner's prayer. They come, they have a moment of Christ. We have no idea what happens with them next. And frankly, for many believers, it almost doesn't matter. I led X number of people to Christ. God bless Billy Graham. I love that. I've loved that man. I got to meet him in person when I was in seminary. He was on the, he was like an honorary board member and he came and did a lunch with us. And just really, the man was the same behind the scenes as behind the pulpit. And I just really fell in love with the man, Billy Graham. And he was so honest and so frank about things. And he said uh, to us, and I know he said it publicly too, he said, uh, toward the end of my life now, he was in his 70s, I guess, when we got to meet with him late 70s, and he said, I'm, I know that there have been millions, hundreds of millions who have come to the altars and the crusades that we've done, but I don't know how many of them became disciples after that moment. I don't have confidence that after that moment when they had their encounter with God and were saved, I don't know if they really followed through on it. His estimate was maybe 8%. Now, that might be a really blunt, raw, honest assessment. Only heaven knows what happened with all of those who came to the altar. But for us as a local church, our responsibility is to be good stewards of the lives that come to Christ. And so I wanna talk to us today about what goes on behind the scenes. What's the preparation that's done among the people of God so that we bring people to Christ and then we don't lose any that the Father's given to us. It takes a whole people to do so. So I gave you some homework, which really wasn't homework at all. It was just pointing your attention to a scripture to always be prepared to give an account for the hope that lies within you. Well, now I'm gonna give you extra homework. And it's not really homework. It's again, just doing what the Bible says to do. By the end of next month, March, by the end of March, I'd like all of us to have, to be able to name one person, only one. You don't need to meet your crowd, you don't need to reach a small group's worth. One person that you are walking with who you are more mature in Christ and you are helping them grow into maturity in Christ. Just put your finger up like this, everybody please. That's all you gotta do, one person person. Frankly, if you're not doing that, if we are not pulling at least one person up, then I have to ask the question, what are we doing here? I know that's a hard word, but it's because I love you and because I always got the Lord reminding me. What is the purpose of this? What's the purpose of church? To have a rally session once a week to go out there and, hey, great word, and then I go back and it's Monday morning business as usual? Or are we actually laborers in the field? When Jesus said, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few, are we those who will say, oh, not on our watch? Laborers in the harvest doesn't just mean a one-time thing. All of you farmers know there's a lot more involved than just going out and pulling things out of the field. Now you process what you brought in, you're doing things with it, right? So we're doing that. Jesus spent three and a half years with his apostles. And toward the end of his life, he gathered the apostles together and he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. He told them this, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you've heard from me. That was the promised Holy Spirit 
Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit during the Last Supper. He introduced Holy Spirit to them at other times in their ministry. They just hadn't experienced it yet. They had no idea what this Holy Spirit thing was going to be all about. They'd read, they knew about the Spirit of God and the prophets and so on. And I don't know what their thoughts were about what this experience was going to be like. Nobody knew on that day. That it was going to mean speaking in foreign languages, tongues of fire dancing on their head and spilling out into the street like a bunch of drunks. I guaranteed nobody interpreted the scriptures that way at the time. They didn't know what to expect. How many of you actually knows what's going to happen tomorrow? No, I mean fully. Like you know exactly what's going to transpire the whole day tomorrow. None of us, right? None of us has a clue what's going to happen tomorrow. If I ever needed to be re-humbled about the, the lack of knowledge I have about the future, I just got one word for you, 2020. <laughs> no, not a single prophet who called anything to happen that year. It took everybody by surprise, as if the Lord was hitting a reset button to say, I don't want you just going based on your, your faith is not going to be, well, God already told me what's going to happen next, and that's why I have peace. Our faith is not going to be grounded in that. Our faith has got to be grounded in, I know who is with me through no matter what comes next. The entire context of the New Testament, you read the book of Acts, which I love this book, uh, uh, I think, did we do a class in the book of Acts? I'm sure I must have taught it. Surely I haven't been here 16 years and didn't do the book of Acts with you. Pretty confident we did. Now I'm not confident. That's why I can't get off of it. But I'm pretty sure we did. If not, coming soon to a church near you. But the thing I love about the book of Acts is it's got like 3,000 came and got saved. That's awesome. Yeah. Then the next thing you know, Peter and John are arrested and they're beating them and threatening their lives. Don't ever say the name of Jesus again. So what do they do? They go on preach Jesus again and now 5,000 are in the kingdom. And then what happens? They arrest all the apostles and beat them within inches of their lives. They come out praising God and saying, hey, we were counted worthy to suffer. This is awesome. <laughs> so the next chapter says multitudes are now coming to the faith. And then comes a persecution and James becomes the first martyr. And the whole book is like that. It's like, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, the whole book. <laughs> That's our life. We should expect that there is going to be pushback from the kingdom of darkness. If there is none, then what are we doing here? If there is never any persecution, I almost said prosecution. Persecution could be through prosecution, but I'm staying off that subject. There could be persecution. There could be rejection. There could be some of us going to get fired. Some of us are going to be thrown out of various places. I don't know what could happen, but I do know this. That from now until the end of time, Jesus is going to be revealed. His government of the increase of his government and of his peace, there's going to be no end of it. And I know that we have got a promise from the Father, and that's the Holy Spirit. This is how Jesus fulfills his word of promise to us. I will never leave you or forsake you. All those times, if we ever say, God, you left me all by myself, we just lied to heaven. We did. I feel so alone right now. I feel like I'm all by myself in this thing. I feel like everyone has forsaken me. Those are feelings. And I believe me, I have felt every one of those things. Where do you think I get all this stuff from? <laughs> I've felt every one of those things. But to agree with that lie, that I am alone in this, is to reject the very word of God. 
Jesus is faithful to his promise. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. So what are we going to do? We're going to devote ourselves to waiting for the promise of the Father. Now, how do we wait on the Lord? In America, we think waiting means, I've got my arms folded. Hey, whenever you're ready, Jesus, I'm here waiting for you. Like I'm waiting for the train to arrive or something like that. Or I'm waiting for my, you know, my plane to land and my friend to come down that you know, the gates or something like that. We're waiting. Waiting, biblically, is not a passive exercise. Waiting's never passive in the Scripture. You know, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Everybody loves that promise, right? And we think it just means, well, I've got to wait patiently for God to do what only God can do. And there is that aspect of it. There are things in life that only God has to come through on. There are things that we just can't do. In fact, <laughs> the older I get, and the longer I walk with God, the more I realize falls into that category. Things I used to think I did because I was so awesome at it, I now realize I'm actually horrible at that. And Jesus, uh, it's like Mr. Magoo sometimes. <laughs> you remember Mr. Magoo? I don't even know all the things that have been crashing behind me, and the things I've tripped on and knocked over, and he's just rescued it. I don't even know what those are. The reality is the, the longer we walk with God, the more the reality of when Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. That nothing, no thing. In the Greek, it means nothing at all. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's it. It means apart from me, don't even bother trying to take your next breath. That, that's what I pray for all of us that our life becomes like with Christ. That it's not just, man, I need him to come through in those big times when I got that big problem in front of me. No, I want to be like in him we live and move and have our being. I want us to come to an awakening of the reality that we are now dependent on him for our very life. He's the vine, we're the branches, we're going to do whatever it takes to stay connected. And then we'll be ready for absolutely anything. There is nothing that could ever come our way that'll separate us from the love of God in Christ. And through that lifestyle, we are more than conquerors through him. So it involves uh, uh, waiting on the Lord. They that wait upon the Lord, the Hebrew word there for wait means to get woven. It's a weaving process. While we're waiting for the Lord, we're not being passive about it. We're engaging his presence. We're prayerfully leaning in to hear his voice, to connect with his heart, to understand his ways more than we are demanding he fulfill his promises to us. That, that during the waiting, there is work that happens during that time that is absolutely critical for what's next. You know, for those who, we come in and sometimes we almost treat the promises of God like it's a push the button, you get this thing. And, and if uh, all of you who have worked out know that if there's never a testing or resistance, you don't get any stronger. I've learned the hard way through my years. I used to be very athletic, played water polo, worked out every day and stuff like that. And then, then I became a dad and then I worked out by playing with my kids. And then I, then I became a pastor and I sit all day and talk to people. And I've learned, as physiologists have known for very long, that muscle turns to fat much quicker than fat turns to muscle. So it is spiritually. The less used our spiritual muscles are, we can go, what's, what's the word when your muscles go limp? Sherry, what's it called? Atrophied. Did you say that or did I hear your voice in my head? I looked at you and I heard Sherry's voice say atrophied. But you said it, didn't you? <laughs> 
somebody over there said it, atrophied. We become spiritually atrophied when in the waiting process for God to come through on something we believe he's going to do for us, we do nothing but wait. Waiting on the Lord means getting in his word. It means being in prayer. It means doing all the things that we do in life and leaning in so that we're prepared for that moment. So what were the apostles doing? They were gathered in the upper room. They were uh, hanging out together, about 120 of them. There were some women there. There were all kinds of people in that room who responded to the call of Jesus after he rose from the dead. I've often wondered, it says, uh, Paul tells us in his letter to the Galatians that when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to more than 500 people. So not only you know, did the word spread, but Jesus physically appeared to over 500 people. Now I know he told the apostles to wait in Jerusalem, but what about all the other people? I wonder how many of them, they heard that from Jesus, risen from the dead Jesus, like physically manifest, not you heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend, saw him, and only about 120 went to the upper room. Boy, if there was ever a church meeting you did not want to miss, this was the one. I mean, most of them are nameless, faceless people in history. We have no idea who the rest of those guys were. We know all the apostles. We know all the Marys. We know the Peter, Paul, and Marys of the world, right? We know all of that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we don't know all the others. There's like 100 people or more in that room that are not named but they were every bit as meaningful and as important to the work that God was about to pour out into the earth, namely the church being born and spreading to the corners of the globe. They were every bit as essential for the ministry as the ones whose names ended up in the Bible. What were they doing together during that time? They weren't just hanging out waiting for the apostles to do something. They were in that room, it says, they were all with one mind, one mind, this is such a foreign concept to we independent Americans. We value diversity. We value being unique individuals. That's all true, right? Anybody here a cookie cutter? I don't want to be a cookie cutter. You ever make like paper people? Like you cut them out and they're all like this together. That is not the body of Christ. It looks nice for, you know, memes and whatnot. And they're all holding hands too. It's so cool, isn't it? It's so cute. They're always out, they come out holding hands and like that. That is not who we are. God is able to make every single one of us as unique and different as snowflakes and at the same time make us to be of one mind. One mind means there's not a hundred opinions flooding into the room on every subject. One mind doesn't mean that we're uniform either. It doesn't mean that we say and speak like robots, the exact same things. But one mind means we are focused on Jesus and what he is saying to us right now. That's what one mind looks like. One mind means we have the mind of Christ and we think with it rather than allowing all the other minds out there to influence us. There are a lot of minds, or we use the term mindsets out there. You could translate this rightly. In part, they were of one mindset. What was their mindset? Their mindset was, we have a world to reach right now, and Jesus said, wait here, because he's going to give us something that's going to help with that. He calls it the Holy Spirit. That's a new term for us. We know about the Spirit of God. Never heard it called the Holy Spirit before quite like that. What's this going to be all about? So what were they doing? They were with one mind. What were they doing? Continually devoting themselves to prayer. 
They were continually devoting themselves to prayer. This comes always when the subject of prayer comes up in any Christian community, so don't hear anything I'm not saying today. This always comes with a bit of a measure of conviction. I've shared with you before, I went to a pastor's conference Randy Clark was speaking at it and a couple of others. And one of the speakers who was like a national level ministry asked this gathering of, I don't know, a thousand pastors for a show of hands. How many of you have a daily routine or at least a daily connection with Jesus through prayer and or reading the word? Raise your hands. And I'm telling you, in a group of a thousand, there might have been 50 of us that raised our hands. I was blown away. This was a pastor's gathering, and by the way, not just, you know, this was like people that are interested in Randy Clark ministry type pastors. And the honest answer to that was, would that be 5%? I'm not so good at that kind of math. About 5% of us raised our hands. I was shocked and convicted, quickly convicted at all the times in my life that I haven't prayed as I know I ought. And I'm not talking about I got my devotion, I got my 15 minutes with Jesus time. I mean living a lifestyle of praying without ceasing, but also having times of intentional focus. I am seeking your face. A prayerless life for a believer is a proud life. We are communicating without words. If we are prayerless, I can do this without you. I don't really need your wisdom. It's nice sometimes to have it. I don't need you like I need my daily bread. You're like the icing on the cake. You're not the cake of my life. That's what we're communicating. Without words, that's what we're saying. I don't really need you. Prayer is the posture of the humble. Prayer is the posture of a one who says, even though I think I know the answer to the things I'm facing right now, I know that you know vastly more than I ever could about these issues I'm facing. And I know I need you. I need your wisdom, but I also need your supernatural help on these things. And I never want to live my life without giving thanks. I don't want to live my life absent of that connection with the Lord. I urge you, if you do not yet have a consistent prayer life with Jesus, get one. And all you gotta do to start, this is all fresh in my head because I'm recording now the videos for this new discipleship series that we're gonna use here and um, introducing prayer. If you've never prayed before, I don't need a show of hands and I don't want you to feel condemnation. Can you feel conviction without condemnation? Is that all right? Because I love you and I receive the conviction myself first. Then I pass on the fun to all of you. (laughs) My prayer life always gets deeper whenever I'm about to speak about prayer. And I begin and end my day with, with this at the very least, giving thanks. If you've never had a prayer life before, begin it by giving thanks. Just begin your day thankful for what lies in front of you. End your day giving thanks for all the ways that you saw God during the day. And if your answer at the end of the day continually is, well, I didn't see you, I didn't see you, I didn't see you, then go back and repeat step one and thank God for what he's about to do that day because it'll open your eyes to be looking for the times that Jesus shows up. Because we could pray, oh God, while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. But if he passes by, it's because we weren't paying attention. I saw a really funny meme. It was a, a guy on a park bench, or a bunch of guys on the park bench on their phones like this, and Bigfoot was walking by. I forget what it said in the meme. 
But I thought that's exactly what we're like with God sometimes. We're so fixated on our problems, on the to-do list, and on all the issues of all the cares of life, as Jesus talked to Martha about. We're fixated on all that, and I believe we miss so many times that there's Jesus looking at us face to face and saying, can I just talk to you for a minute? Because I got something awesome, and it's right on the other side of this veil. If you would just turn aside for a moment, oh, the places you'll go, oh, the things you'll see, Oh, the life you will have if you just turn aside for a moment away from your previously scheduled life and allow me in a little bit on your day. That's a lifestyle of prayer. And yeah, it gets deeper and it gets richer when you involve the word of God in it, when you have a a testimony of a life lived in that place of connection with Jesus. Oh, it gets better. But if we want to be prepared for whatever happens next, which nobody knows, then we begin in that place of connection and prayer. Failure to prepare is preparation for failure. I heard that from a colonel that came and spoke at Christ Community, and uh, he had a great ministry. And, and he was one of those guys, he walked in the room, and even if he didn't know he was a military man, you just felt like saying, yes, sir. Whenever he spoke to you, he's like six foot four, strong man, but he had a commanding presence about him. He was a U.S. colonel, colonel in the army. And uh, he said these words, failure to prepare is preparation for failure. And those, are so, that, those words are so true. How do we prepare? Just get in the place of prayer. Ooh, that rhymed. How do you, pre- I should have put that on a slide. How to prepare, get in prayer. I don't know if that's hokey or cool or accidental or what, but. But it really is. I know it sounds, you know, the problem we have so many times is we want things to be more complicated. Well, give me five steps for prayer now. Give me, you know, some thing, you know, we're like the disciples. Teach us how to pray. I mean, um, Jesus did. God bless him. He gave them. He said, all right, I'll meet you where you're at. When you pray, say these words. He started off with that. But that wasn't meant to be all that there is to prayer. Prayer is how we connect with God. So prepare by getting connected to God in the place of prayer. Preparation of spirit is more important than any other kind of preparation. You know, we lost power last week and it caught me unprepared. I've been more, it was that two weeks ago. Somewhere a while ago, we lost power and you know, it was more than an hour or two. And when I saw PPNL said it's not gonna be back till Thursday, I realized, man, I probably should have gotten that generator I've been talking about for so long. So guess who went racing out before everybody else could buy him out of stock to get a generator for his house so I could have whoever needed warmth to come over and stay in my house. And so my wife and kids would be warm that night because it was going down into the 20s. I wasn't prepared for that day. But preparation of spirit is more important than any other kind of preparation. Yes, we need to prepare our finances, our lives. We need to use wisdom in how we go about everyday life. But the most important preparation is when our inner man is ready for whatever comes our way. Opportunities that heaven is bringing our way and things that the enemy is bringing our way that he desires to distract, discourage, and and get us right off track entirely with God. We need to be spiritually prepared for all of those things. There is no substitute. There's no book we can read. There's no seminar we can go to. There's no impartation that we can get from any human being on the earth that will ever replace the place where we are face-to-face with God. It is our privilege. We have now not a thinnest of veils between us and the presence of the Lord. 
You, saint of God, and I are now the embodiment of where the mercy seat dwells. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the place where God dwells. We don't have to wait to get somewhere. We don't need somebody to tell us anything. We have but to turn our attention. That kind of preparation is preparation because we just really don't know what tomorrow holds. So when it comes to spiritual matters, we can go through life, right? and be fairly successful. We live in the midst of such wealth around us. You know, I was talking with my son the other day about this, how one generation can be utterly foolish in the United States and forsake every bit of wisdom, whether it's out of the word of God or out of just the wisdom passed down through ages on how to handle finances and how to govern and all of that. And we could get away with it for an entire generation because of the wealth that's been stored up previously. We can ride like, uh, like trust fund kids. There's such wealth in the bank that we could ride and be deceived for a long time. Everything's fine. We still got food on the table. I still got a job. I still got cars. Still got all of my life. I get to go on vacation. We got all these things. But if we're foolish enough to think that we don't have to be good stewards of that, there will come a generation that ends up in poverty. Right? It's, it's like that in the natural it's also like that in the spirit. There will come a day when a demand is placed on us for spiritual ministry, like leading somebody to Christ, like setting somebody free from demonic spirits, like bringing healing to their broken body or their broken heart. There's going to come moments in time, there must come moments in time, that we are stretched outside what we could do without Jesus. And if all we live, our whole life is only lived in the place where we could do it without the Lord, we are not building anything spiritual that's going to last. To be spiritually prepared is the most important kind because we can't fake it. In the spirit realm, spiritual strength and vitality cannot be faked. We find if it's not real on the inside, it'll never manifest on the outside. We could go through the motions. Look, Somebody, for example, who's really articulate can get into a prayer meeting and pray scriptures for 15 minutes straight and everybody in that circle will be impressed like the Pharisees of old. But if that person doesn't have a living, dynamic prayer life in the secret place, it's going to drop to the ground and it'll bear no fruit that's spiritual. Does that make sense? So we can have an intellectual carrying on of certain things, but if we haven't been with Jesus in the secret place, there's nothing that we're going to have on the outside when it comes to spiritual warfare. Only flesh and blood can be fooled by that outward show. Ask the sons of Siva. Do you remember this story? It's one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. They saw Paul casting out demons. So these were seven uh, Jewish, um, what do you call them, uh, exorcists. And they, they went and they tried to cast his spirit out of this kid. And um, they said, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, come out. And the spirit looked at them and said, Jesus we know. Paul we know. But we don't know you. And that dude beat up all seven of them, sent them running out the house naked. They had an outward show. They were known as, um, I always forget the word, exorcists. They had the reputation. But when a push came to shove and it was spirit versus spirit, they had no collateral in the spirit realm. Why? They hadn't been with Jesus. This Jesus whom Paul preaches, I mean, can you get any more distant than that? What's his name again? Oh, Jesus, that guy that Paul was talking about. In his name, come out. And they're running out naked in the streets. That's what spiritual warfare is like. So that was a long way of saying, be prepared by being prepared in the secret place. 
So what happened when the day of Pentecost had fully come? They were all together in one place. And now we know what they were doing. They were all together in one place. They'd been the assembly of the firstborn, meaning they gathered together. They did things together. They didn't do this each to your own tent kind of thing. I've got some friends and I love them dearly. And all they do is meet in their like house church group. They got like their two or three couples and they come together. And one of them just the other day said to me, and that's my church. I said, no, it's not. That is not your church. That's your fellowship circle. Yeah. But you are not doing church if you are disconnected from the rest of the body of Christ. And it's we four and no more. You're not doing church. You're doing something that belongs within the context of church, but you're not replacing the gathering of the saints. And you know that I don't mean just like Hillside here in this room gathered. I mean the church, capital C, joining together for a region, but that's another subject for another day. Unity, we're all together in one place. And then came this day that the Holy Spirit was poured out. Now why that day in particular? You ever thought about why it had to be on the 50th day after Jesus rose from the dead? Why the Feast of Pentecost? Pentecost was the celebration of the Feast of the Lord of the harvest. They would take in the barley harvest on that day. Feast of first fruits, that was the Sunday morning that Jesus rose from the dead. They would wave the first things that sprung up from the ground before the Lord and hold it up. Here it is. We, we got the first evidence that God's coming through. And the first fruits were Jesus rising from the dead. So he rose from the dead on that day. Seven sevens or seven weeks after that day came the day of Pentecost. That means that the harvest had now fully ripened and it was time to gather it in. That was the Feast of Pentecost in those times. So the natural harvest had become ripe and the spiritual harvest had become ripe. And that's why on that day the church was born because now the harvest was plenty and the laborers were many. There were at least 120 that were ready to go on that day. Why? Because they had been preparing in secret. You guys still with me? Tell me if I'm speaking too fast. I get excited about these things maybe because it's my whole life's ministry and, and work, but also because I know what this means for the world. I know that today what it means for the world, if a church remembers who we are and why we're here, and we go for it and do it, the world will never be the same again. So unity, it's far more than just what keeps us together in Christ. I mean, I love it when the family gets along. I've told you many times, my favorite sound in the world apart from worship and I love the instruments, but I also love like today when we're just singing just the voices. There's something about when the worship's louder behind me here up in the front than it is with the amplified sound coming from the platform as glorious and anointed as that is. And it is anointed here. I love the sound of that, but I also love the sound of fellowship. At the end of service, you know, I, I, the Chandler's reminded me when they got here, I said, oh, you're the door closing types of people, aren't you? because they just love fellowship. They love connecting with people and that roar of fellowship, of conversation. And I know it can be annoying when you get older, but when the fellowship is so loud that you have to raise your voice. You ever watch that happen in a crowd, by the way? It's so funny. Like somebody's talking loud over here. So this guy raises his voice over here and then he's too loud, so they raise their voice. And the volume just keeps increasing because everybody has to talk loud enough to be heard anyway. That sound of fellowship... That's just, and it's as beautiful to me as a mighty rushing wind of the Spirit of God coming in a room because it's evidence that the Spirit's there. But unity is for far more than that. Unity, uh, the joining together of the body of Christ has in and of itself a fruit 
That's for the outside. The very acceptance of the gospel message depends on the body of Christ being one. The, the, the message itself. I know that we've seen tremendous harvests over the years. Do you all see with me and believe with me that the best is yet to come? We're not going to be sitting by the fire when we're in our 80s reminiscing about, oh, remember that outpouring back in the 70s? That was just great. That G- no. No, no, no. I mean, I wasn't saved for that, so maybe that's sour grapes. But the 90s was a tremendous decade for harvest, and all the outpourings in all the places, and it was just glorious like that. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be sitting now 20 years from now telling stories of days gone by. My kids are already calling me out on, Dad, we've heard that story before. Need some new stories then, right? We need some new testimonies. That's the truth about what we're stepping into. The greatest harvest is yet to come. And it's not coming because of great preachers who are going to be named in places. This is universally accepted. Every prophet of repute that I've been following who's, you know, spot on with like they prophesy something and then you see it. Usually a decade later, like Bill Hammond and and people like that and Kim Clement, major prophets who have a track record of accuracy with what God's doing. One thing we are all agreed on is that the next major in-gathering worldwide is going to be from the nobody knows their names of the world. It's going to be the body of Christ, revived and restored to our initial purpose. It's not going to be Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John doing all the stuff. It's going to be the church of Jesus Christ doing all the stuff because everybody's now active and alive in ministry. Aren't you glad to be a part of that? You are not part of a seat warming church. In case you didn't know that, that's not what we are. That's not what we do here. We are a go out there and do the stuff church. All of us. Everybody is a laborer in this harvest field. Jesus prayed this prayer. If just in case you think I'm stretching the truth. Last Supper, final words with his apostles before he goes to Gethsemane and then it's from there to the cross, to the grave, to the sky. Right? And his last words, his last prayer, we call this his high priestly prayer. Because he'd already, you know, he already had a priestly robe on when he prayed this. They said at the cross they had to gamble for his garment because it was a woven garment. No seams. That's what the priests wore when they were doing their work of ministry. Jesus already had that on. And he said, I'm going to finish my work now as priest, as an intercessor between God and the people who have no access for the last time till I have a nation of priests. And he prayed this. He said, I don't ask on behalf of these alone, meaning the ones sitting around the table with me here at the Last Supper, I'm not just asking on their behalf, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's us. That is, our, that is every generation that has come since then, those who believe in him through the word that the apostles spoke. What did he pray? That they may all be one. (laughs) I want them to be one. These are his last words of all the things. He didn't say, I pray that they will (coughs) carry power like I did. He didn't say, I pray that they'll be holy and perfect like I am. It was one thing on his heart that he brought before the Father. I want them to be one. How one? Like you're in me and I'm in you so that they may also be in us. We've been invited into the very Godhead itself. You know, being in Christ is not just a metaphor. It means we actually, we are in the fellowship, if you will. I don't believe in three gods having fellowship. I don't care for that way of describing Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But we're in this unity with them. We're in unity with God. And how many of you know that there's no fighting inside the Godhead? 
There's no division within the Godhead to behave in a divisive way, to think in other words of ourselves as a silo disconnected from the rest of the body of Christ is a foreign concept within the Godhead. We're one. How many of you believe that Jesus' prayers always get answered? Yes, they do. This is the only prayer remaining that we haven't yet seen manifest. We haven't seen the full manifestation of this. (coughs) That they may be one so that the world may believe that you sent me. The very message, the reception of the message we preach rides on our unity. (coughs) Excuse me one second here. So the apostles then, and I'll, I'll be building on this in the weeks ahead. The apostles then went and they did something. That day, gospel was preached. 3,000 came to Christ. Maybe if we agree with the scholars, that's just counting the men and the women and children weren't included. So anyway, a lot of people, thousands of people came to Christ, right? They were baptized into Christ that day. They became part of a community. They entered into something that was already happening. This was the strength of what Jesus did. And by the way, all of you in the Fathers and Mothers Leadership Group, and even if you're not a part of that, there's a book we're going to be reading together. It's called um, <laughs> The Master Plan of Evangelism. It's a classic Coleman. What was his first name, Brian? Brian. Steve, you just ordered it. <clears throat> Where'd he go? I don't remember it either. Coleman's the last name. It's a short work, which is my favorite kind of books. Short read. Short, simple, to the point, the master plan of evangelism. What was it? Jesus trained 12, and then he had 120 that were trained in a way, right? Jesus said, I am the way. He didn't train them in a set of doctrines. He didn't train them in a set of beliefs. He trained them in a way of doing life together. For three and a half years, Jesus showed them, this is how heaven in the earth does life. Robert Coleman, thank you. Robert Coleman, The Master Plan of Evangelism. It's almost as old as me. The Bible is from the 70s, is, is it? But it's, it's a classic, timeless study on how Jesus did it. How many of you believe Jesus knows better than anybody who's ever lived how to do evangelism right? And how to do the church right? It's a simple study on how Jesus went about it, and it resimplifies everything. He equipped a small group of people made sure that they were transformed into a new being and gave them a commission to go and do the same for others. And it's why we're here today. So here's the lifestyle that they lived. I'm gonna close briefly with these four points. It says that they came in and what did they do? They entered into a lifestyle. They were continually devoting themselves. There's that word again. That means giving their priority, their whole heart to certain practices that become a lifestyle devoting themselves they they were meaning from the heart with all of their pride this was top of the agenda for them in their lives these people had businesses these people had families these people actually were mostly deep in deep poverty you know one thing i love about going to liberia is that it resets my understanding of what poverty looks like because american poverty ain't poverty it reminds me of how hard it is to spend your entire day working for daily bread I'm watching merchants that pull up to the side of the road in a wheelbarrow that's filled with either some kind of produce or flip-flops or something like that, and they'll be there from sunup to sundown trying to earn enough money to put food on the table for their family all day, every day, in the blazing hot sun or in the pouring down rain. 
And that, that's daily bread life like that. And when you get into a service, a, a worship service with these guys, you can see that they are still devoted to God above everything else. There are things that we devote our time, energy, and attention to. We have more hobbies in the West than any people have ever had, even including the Roman Empire. And they were pretty leisurely people, in Rome at least, anyway. If you weren't a slave, you had a pretty good life. That was a small percentage of people. But there's a devotion aspect of Christ. There is a first love aspect of Christ. So we can ask the Lord, Lord, return me to my first love. But what that's going to mean is Jesus really does, in fact, come first. His purposes, his plans, his agenda, that it actually comes first. And if you make that decision today to do that, welcome to a, a small percentage of the body of Christ. And I've been around here and other churches and have friends that are pastors and I'll ask certain questions and, and that, and, and it becomes evident that sometimes Jesus makes the top of the list and then other times other things make the top of the list. And other things take on more importance. How do we know it's more important? What are we spending our money on? What are we spending our time on? Those things reveal what's actually most important to us. Now, I'm not making a statement about the price of things and all that, but what we do with what we have decisions to make about really is the manifestation, what's actually most important to us. So I challenge you to do that. I challenge myself to do that all the time. Am I devoted to these things? One, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. We have the apostles' teaching or apostles' doctrine in written format today. We have a Bible. I saw a video, and I forgot to put it in the slideshow for you. Somebody posted on um, um, X, Twitter, the other day. There was a group of Chinese believers, and there was a suitcase in the middle of the room. And one of them unzipped the suitcase and opened it up, and it was full of Bibles. I'm going to tell you that the joy on their faces when they saw what was in that suitcase. They scrambled like, like seagulls on a piece of bread on the beach to each grab one and get one. And you see them hugging it and weeping. And one of them saying, this is what we needed most. This is what we needed most. Because they're devoted to Christ, but they didn't have the apostles' doctrine handy. And, and even, I love this thing. Man, 34 years now, this has been my daily bread absolutely love what I've learned from this and from the author walking with the author understanding what he wrote there is nothing more important to know in life there's no stats in any sport that's more important there's nothing that we learn in any other sphere of life that's more important than consuming this Jesus in print form is another way of viewing this this is what this is and I saw that and even I was convicted that man, maybe I don't love the word quite as much as I thought because look at their tears just to have one of these things. And I've got about a dozen of them on my shelf that haven't been touched. Now this one, on the other hand, is going to be worn out soon. This is my fourth Bible. I'm wearing them out. I love wearing out a Bible. I hope yours end up worn out too. I hope the pages fall out of your favorite section of Scripture. I expect Ephesians chapter 4 will be the first page that will fall out of this Bible too as it has all my predecessors. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine. I urge you, as much as I've urged you to get in prayer, get into this word yourself. You know, I've, I hear criticism sometimes about 
messages, never about mine for whatever reason. I don't know if they're just that good or if you just don't want to say anything to me about it. I don't know. But I hear criticism sometimes about preachers and things that they say from people who are not making any biblical point about it, just opinions. I don't know about you, but I'm so bored with people's opinions these days. With social media, now it's like you can't get away from people's opinions. So my first question always is somebody comes and they have a, a problem with something somebody said or preached and whatnot. I was like, can you tell me what scripture you're thinking of when you criticize that way? And I'm going to tell you almost every time the answer is, I don't know. One of the things I loved about the Chandlers when I first met them, I taught the end times doctrine that I, I believe and I did a one-day seminar on it. At the end of the day, they came to me and they said, we have questions for you. They came to me with, I'm telling you, it was like an inch-thick book of scriptures, ones I didn't have a chance to cover because it was only a one-day seminar. And we talked, we opened up the word together and we talked. Can I tell you, that's one of my favorite conversations I've had in my life because two people were hungry enough about the word of God that they wanted to understand the apostles' doctrine and not to say, well, I heard somebody else say it differently. I'm gonna go with that. We need to know the word. You need to know the word yourself. Don't believe a word that I preach from this pulpit. I'm, these lips just kind of flap and I hope it's helpful. But I am a plagiarist of the word of God and I hope I will always be that. I hope I never preach anything or say something that's an opinion of men but something that came from studying the word of God. My father in Christ, Phil Capuccio, he drilled that so deep in me, I was afraid to talk with him sometimes unless I was ready with scripture about why I believe what I believe. My seminary professor in theology too, he said, you can believe whatever you want at the end of this class, just back it up with scripture. And, and he meant it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Fellowship, koinonia, that means a group of people who are in agreement that connect heart to heart with one another. If you don't have that yet, I'm gonna show you some opportunities that you have um, here at Hillside. If you don't have fellowship, which means real deal, face to face, I know you, you know me, I can say anything to you, you can say anything to me, and there's not gonna be any room for offense because I love you, you love me, and we are connected in Christ, and ain't, ain't nothing gonna come between us. Ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no river wide enough. I'll find a way to get to you. Right, that's fellowship. It means genuine life connection. Fellowship isn't what we do here on Sunday morning. There's a little bit of it. This is like an appetizer of fellowship, what we get in our couple hours together, three hours together on a Sunday morning. Fellowship is when you're doing life together out there. People know you, you know them. Now you got fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. What that means, and this is where fellowship and breaking of bread have got to become connected because we're not just a social club. Right? We're not like the Lions Club or the, the, what's that from the Flintstones where he was the Grand Poobah, whatever those guys were. The, you know, what were they called? The Royal Order of the Water Buffalo. <laughs> yeah, it sounds about right. We're not, that's not what we are, right? We're not just the people that get together to have friendship with each other. There's a Jesus in the middle of us, and he said, when two or three are gathered together in my name, what? I'm going to be right there in the midst of you. So breaking of bread, remember when Jesus got revealed to the apostles or the, the believers who were on the road to Emmaus, they broke bread with Jesus and he was revealed. 
The breaking of bread means Jesus is the center of our fellowship. So I do urge all the life groups, ministry teams, when you're together, break bread often, if not every time you gather, and open it up to Jesus and say, you are here right now. We acknowledge your presence and we acknowledge that we're only gathered together because of you. You're the reason why we're doing this thing today. Break that bread and watch Jesus manifest himself. Now we have 3D fellowship. It's not just me and you, it's me and you and Jesus. A three-stranded cord, as Ecclesiastes says, that's not easily broken. Because now we got Christ woven in the midst. And finally, we're not going to get away from it. They devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. Making intercession for one another praying for one another, groups that gather together like this and devote themselves to prioritizing this, have a group of people that you know you can count on. Everything falls apart in your life, you have a group of people that will have fellowship, bring Jesus, and they'll be in prayer. They will be with you in that place, calling on the Lord on your behalf. Praying together, the best way to get to know somebody is to pray with them. You want to know what's in somebody's heart? Join together with them as they pour out their heart before God. Oh, that's a great way to get to know somebody. You'll, you'll find out about the riches of Christ in somebody else. Or you'll pray and you'll realize, man, they never pray. I wonder what their, their own prayer life is like. And you'll love enough, enough in fellowship to say, hey, um, do you pray? Like, do you do, you do this stuff? <gasps> I can't do that. That's meddling. I hope I always have people in my life that feel free to meddle. I really do. I've had friends. I, I, I'm still friends. You remember um, Pastor Rick Anderson? Man, I miss that guy. He, he's off, off in some town I never, still can't retain the name of in the middle of PA, like 800 people. And I don't know. Jesus and I are still talking about that one. But, you know, with him, I still get together with him. It's pick up right where we left off. If I'm complaining about something, like a family member or something like that, he gets right in my face. And I thank God for people like that in my life. I hope you have people like that in your life. And as you pray together, you grow in community. You're weaving Christ into the middle of your fellowship. Embracing these four practices is how we unite our lives to care for new believers that are in our midst and also prepare for the harvest that is to come. That's what these four practices are. So I'm going to just close with a commercial. Commercial break for all the ways that we endeavor to do this at Hillside. We have life groups. We have ministry teams, we have Bible studies, we have prayer groups. These are places to be intentional about being in one place. That means a physical place. I love all of you who join us online, but you gotta be physically in one place with us at some point. And, and we know some of you, we love you, but if you're only an online church attender, you haven't yet joined together and you're not yet experiencing uh, even a little bit of what the life and the family of God is like. We miss you, we want you here. I'd love to see your face actually together with us in some context. That being said, we have life groups, all right? The Chandlers have a life group. They are, uh, they are meeting February 25th. That's today at three o'clock, Chandler's life group. At your house? Yes. At their newly renovated house. So that, that's a phenomenal group. They pray for each other, they build each other up. They're just an awesome, alive group. In Christ. Then the um, Gearhearts have a life group for married couples. 
whether your marriage is struggling or your marriage is new or you just say, I just want to keep building my marriage. I want it to be built on a really good rock and I want enrichment. I want other couples that we'll be able to pour out our hearts to and challenge us and encourage us and help us work through all the stuff of marriage. That your gear hearts is your life group for that. And they meet uh, tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Todd, wave your hand around. That's Todd. That's the one of the gear hearts. His wife is back with the kids, I suppose. Chandler's, would you raise your hands? I've got to have you do that. That's Warren and Karen Chandler. That's the first group I told you about. Then there's the new life group that you heard about today, the Greenhouse. I love, love, love that name. That's the Stanfields. Would you wave your hands around? Stephen Tina Stansfield. That'll be meeting at their house, and it's starting on Friday, March 8th at 630. If you don't have a life group, this is a new one. It's going to be a great connecting place. You've got a true father and mother in the Stansfields who will be there. The women, we have some women's Bible studies, one called Made to Crave, and that's Anastasia, who I don't think is with us today. Um, but that's that started on Friday, February 9th. I don't think it's too late to join with them. If you're women, you want to connect with some other women. And this is a Bible study program they're doing, Made to Crave. It's phenomenal. Other women's ministry events. We have a women's Bible study that Candy is leading. Where's Candy? I saw her face. There's Candy. See Candy right there? Wave it higher. That's Candy. She's leading a women's Bible study. Uh, it's underway already, but it's not too late to join, right? Never too late to join. Anytime at Candy's, where you meet here? That's still, it's meeting at the church. And that is when? Second and fourth Thursdays. Mom Squad, that's Anastasia. That meets the second Saturday from 9 to 11. That's for mothers, mainly with little kids together. But I suppose if you have teenagers, you're welcome to join too. But that's moms to encourage one another and build each other up in Christ so you can get connected with them. There is a men's breakfast and prayer outreach that is uh, hosted at the Spots House. Corey, where's Corey? There's Corey Spots. Great man of God, great father. He is like, uh, uh, like the father all of us wish we had. He is just like that. He's an amazing dad. And uh, see, there's his son saying amen. That's, that's right there, like every father's dream. So Corey Hosett at his house, and um, you can join with him. That's the fourth Saturday of every month in the morning, 7 to 9. Uh, there's also another men's group that meets with Warren Chandler. Wave, wave your hand, Warren. Warren is soon to be retired. So he'll have all kinds of time for all of you that go to that group now and connect with him. He's another father in the house, man of the word, a man of prayer, and a man of exhortation. He is one of the most encouraging people you have ever met. And if you're a man in need of anything that men need, that's going to be one-stop shopping for it all. Second Saturday of the month, 7 to 9 at the Chandler's. We have ministry teams now. This is another way to connect, do all of these practices together, but by ministering together. So, you know, the body is connected based on function, right? The fingers are connected to the palm because that's where they work best. They don't work best in the forehead. They don't work best, right? They're connected because they function well together like that. So ministry teams are great expressions of the body of Christ. So we're in need of more people to serve in the youth ministry, Hillside Student Ministries. Wednesday night's our main meeting. But they're also looking for people in the youth ministry who can host life groups of youth. So like a middle school life group, a high school life group, maybe separate, separate out the young men, young women in those two, and uh, just pour into young people. So we're commanded to do that. You know that, right? Older men are commanded to invest in the lives of the young men. Older women are commanded to invest in the lives of the young women. So it's a great place to serve um, in that.
for prayer. We have prayer every Sunday morning at nine o'clock. Now, I don't want to shame anybody. You want to go and gather in the cafe and have coffee together. That's important too, that we connect heart to heart on Sunday mornings. But we also join together. We believe that Jesus is alive and present when we meet here. So this prayer meeting, I'm making this, this sign because we gather in a circle right here. This prayer meeting is to call on the Lord about what his purpose is for the Sunday morning gathering. It is our main meeting of the week, and I, I, I know it's traditional, but it's a good tradition. This is the Lord's Day. Did you know Saturday is the Sabbath? Sunday is the Lord's Day. Do you know Jesus introduced to the world the concept of a two-day weekend? One more thing to be thankful for. The Lord's Day is now a day off. Sunday was not a day off in the first century. You worked six days a week and then took a Sabbath if you obeyed the law of God. Now we got two days off. And one of those days, we start our week off, the first day of the week, devoted to the Lord by gathering, worshiping, encouraging each other, and you know all the stuff that happens when you gather with Jesus. So we gather at 9 a.m., pray, prophesy, speak into the life of what God's gonna do that day. Very important gathering for us at that point. Um, there's another prayer meeting that happens on the second and fourth Tuesday of the month that also happens here. You heard it advertised earlier. That's also right here in the sanctuary. That's more for praying for the needs of the saints, for the needs of the nation, the world, other things like that. As uh, Steve exhorted us earlier, that'd be a good time to come in and lay hands on somebody who's sick or struggling or, you know, whatever the need is for prayer. That's a group of intercessors ready to go and pray. So that'd be another really good group to connect with. And what was the other one I had up there? Oh, in the food bank ministry a worship development we food bank worship development <laughs> we do as you may have noticed need we need some more people to help in worship ministry all right when when you see me playing the drums i want you to feel convicted if you're a drummer because i don't belong behind a drum kit that's not my role on a sunday morning i'll do it to fill in but i always say i'm the bottom of the barrel it's because we have no other drummer and uh, drums just help with modern worship. So I don't mind doing it and I love playing, but I would love to see one of you playing. So I am aware of a couple of you that play drums and I've been kind so far. So far, avoiding eye contact right now. But if we, we need somebody to play bass up there, man, I, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm the rhythm section with the drums. There's something about bass that just, mm. You know what I mean? It just makes you go, mm. So practice that bass, and if you want to grow and be cultivated in worship, um, maybe you're not ready for the worship team yet, maybe you're new on your instrument and you want to grow a little bit, join together with the worship team third Thursday of the month. Todd, wave your hand around, please, again. Here's Todd. He leads the worship development. That's our way into the worship team on Sunday morning. So get cultivated, get your voice ready, get your instrument ready, and help make a joyful noise on Sunday morning. And then finally, the food bank team. We're on tomorrow. We have a food bank, fourth uh, Monday of the month in the morning. People to assemble bags and put the food together and distribute it. We pray for every single person who comes through. And, and many people have testified over the years we've done it. That's their favorite part about it. I think we get people that come here that don't even need the food. They just want to get some prayer. And they think that's when they have to come to get it. So we're hoping that they'll learn. It's now you don't have to sit in a car for three hours to get prayer. You can come anytime. We, we're open. And, you know, I'll be here all week. We'll pray for you and that. But that team also is another way of connecting in that. So that's, uh, that's not even everything that we do. So all of that's to say, what I exhorted us about today is no excuse. 
there are plenty of opportunities to get connected with those four practices. Why? Not for ourselves, so that we are prepared for the harvest and we won't lose a one that the Father's given to us. Can we stand to our feet? Let's join hands for this one today. I just feel like we should be connected in this. It's okay if you're the end of the chain. <laughs> hold, you can hold Jesus' hand on the other side. But pray for the person on your left and your right with me, would you? And just say, Jesus, I thank you. You don't have to repeat after me or anything. Pray it in your heart. I, uh, I thank you for the honor of being in fellowship with my brother or sister that I'm holding hands with right now. Thank you for already making us one as you and the Father are one. And I pray that our unity together, that this picture of holding hands with one another will be the picture and the spirit that we have, that the world would know that you were sent from the Father, that the world will be absolutely convinced all I need to do is get to the church of Jesus Christ and all will be well. I'll meet with the living God that's in their midst. I'll meet with the God of love that they represent so well by their love for one another. I will find the family that I have always desired just by gathering together with these people. Lord, I pray that you would make me one with the one whose hand I'm holding in a deeper, richer way. Connect us in spirit. Connect us in your word. Connect us in your presence. And make us a place that you would gladly add daily those who are being saved. Amen. Amen. All right, I love you guys. Have an awesome week in Jesus. I'll see you in the plan.